gosh, I, my body is not suited to lentils or beans or any of these plant foods. I'm going back to what I was eating. And I get that. Now, what I want people to understand there is it's not that their physiology is, is unique and for some reason plants are not beneficial for them. It's that their microbiome is not set up in a way that can handle that amount of fiber and they need to allow time for it to adapt. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rage Active podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. He is the founder and host of the podcast, The Proof with Simon Hill, formerly known as Plant Proof. He's the best-selling author of The Proof is in the Plants. He's also the co-founder of Eden in Bondi, which is a plant-based restaurant. He's also a nutritionist and physiotherapist. Welcome to the show, Simon Hill. Rach, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm very excited. I'm so excited for this chat. And I know that there's been so many people I think that we both know in this space who we've both spoken to, worked with, and they all rave about you and your work. So I am so excited to chat to you today. And I mean, one of the cool things that has just, I think, been in the works for a while for you is that you've recently just announced that you've you're going to be expanding your work from, I guess, just nutrition and that sort of scope into something a little bit more broader um, and talking about other topics. So tell me a little bit about this because this is very exciting, I think, and, and I'm excited to hear about the evolution of Plant Proof. Sure. Yeah, I guess that may seem a little counterintuitive to some people who have uh, been tuning into the show over the years. Uh, my background is in in nutrition and I have a master's in nutrition science. And so I, I really focused on, on nutrition related conversations uh, for the last four years of the show. But really my, my broader sort of curiosity is just science in general mm. and using science as a method, which it is to help us reduce uncertainty, which is what we use science for so that we can make better decisions in our life. And when I think uh, about our health. Nutrition is very, very powerful. Uh, so I don't want to sort of understate that. It's incredibly uh, powerful and, and probably the most powerful aspect of our lifestyle. However, I I certainly have felt definitely on my channel and, and probably a little bit in the media as well, I feel that sometimes we forget about all of these other very important aspects of our lifestyle as well. And, and so I think, you know, I'm excited about the opportunity to jump into some of these other areas uh, so that people can fine-tune them as well, take, take the information from the conversations that we have and, and then, you know, make changes that make sense in their life. And the, the, the main message, I guess, that I want to leave people with is that you can have the best diet in the world, but if you're not paying attention to these other pillars mm. of your lifestyle, then you could be leaving health on the table. Yeah, it's, it's so cool to be able to, I guess, look at these other areas as well, aside from nutrition. Like you said, of course, it's one of the most important areas of our health. But then I'm interested to know what type of topic specifically 
is of interest to you? Because I know that there's such a broad range in terms of health mm. that we can look at in terms of lifestyle factors. Sure. So what are, what are the ones that really like mm. get you going? Yeah. Well, my, my undergraduate degree was physiotherapy and I was working uh, as a new grad in sports physiotherapy at a private practice and with AFL uh, players actually in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and so I have a real interest in exercise and movement. And I think a lot of people are exercising, uh, going for jogs or going into the gym, uh, perhaps not with as much information as they could have to get the most out of those sessions. Mm. If you're putting in 60 minutes a day, how much thought is, is going into the kind of creation of those programs and what you're doing so that you're getting you know, the best bang for your buck. So I think exploring what is movement and what are the different types of movement that we want to be looking at introducing into our lives to improve strength, for example, which we know is, is certainly correlated with longevity, but also to look at exercise and, and how we can improve our cardiovascular fitness. What does that actually look like? I think we we hear about doing 150 minutes of sort of quote unquote cardio a week, but what science is that based on? And if we break that down a little further, you know, what does that look like for the average person who is getting into the gym three, four times a, a week? So I'd say that's one pillar. Uh, equally as important and interesting to me is sleep mm. i think we we certainly all are, are are i think better appreciating the role of sleep and and i believe the wearables the wristbands and all the aura ring and, and whatnot <laughs> these device these devices are bringing attention to sleep mm. um i'm not sure whether we, we we fully understand how to interpret the the data yet and so i'm looking forward to to having conversations with scientists about what, what do we understand about sleep? What do we not understand? And then what are, you know, really, I guess, tangible take-home take kind of tips for people to improve their sleep quality and sort of uh, make the most of the benefits that are up for grabs with, with actually having a deeper, more restful sleep. Uh, so I guess that, that's two. There's, there's obviously more, but, um, you know, the aim being there are many incredible scientists out there and not they don't all have a, a platform mm. to speak to people. And so there's a lot of information that is buried in peer-reviewed papers behind paywalls and it's also written uh, almost as if it's in another language. It's not yeah. that accessible. Mm. So I kind of uh, see my role as giving these people who are career scientists a platform and then helping trying to helping to try and make that information a little bit more accessible. Yeah, I really love that. And I think, well, just touching on exercise movement, I think obviously that's a huge thing that we need to make sure that we are healthy and being able to translate the science behind that and the data behind that to something that we can actually um, implement in our lives is hugely, that will be hugely beneficial. Just like you said, to get the most efficient and effective um, workouts in or movement in. Um, but also around sleep, I think that's a super fascinating um, area too, because we don't really hear a lot about sleep and probably take it a lot for granted. Like, yes, you sleep. And mm -hmm. we probably heard, oh, okay, we need to get about eight hours of sleep or whatever the, you know, thing is. But 
to really be able to have that as an informed background into optimizing mm-hmm. that for ourselves. That's really cool. Um, and you mentioned there, you, I guess your role being that tra- almost like a translator in a way of taking that scientific data and, uh, and research and being able to re-communicate that in a way or giving it a platform um, I think is one of the greatest things about your work because that's what you have been doing with nutrition and, and specifically uh, plant-based living and plant-based nutrition um, because it is backed by evidence and we've been able to sort of digest that in a more easily digestible way. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the great things I think that you've done with Plant Proof is just providing that backing and showing the positive impact of a plant-based diet for us as humans, but also the planet as a whole. Um, but one of the things I'm really curious to know is what your life looked like before you adopted a plant-based way of living. Sure. Let me just add one thing, I guess, to, to what you just said then. Yes. I think my kind of uh, interest in translating some of that deeper science stems from conversations with my dad. Mm. And my dad is, he's a professor of physiology. He's been publishing, you know, papers in cell metabolism and cell press and circulation, all of these major journals for the last 30 or 40 years. But he's, he's involved in very deep mechanistic science. Right. And so I've had, you know, many conversations with him over the years from as early as I can remember. And, and I'd often just be sitting there nodding when I was about 12 or 13 and, and really had no idea what he was saying. And, and I think over time, I kind of just appreciated that there is almost this different language in science. Mm. And sometimes the scientists that have been in that space for a long time and have spent most of their time at conferences and communicating with other scientists they can find it somewhat challenging to communicate their work to a more lay audience who just want to know, okay, explain to me in a simple manner what experiment or experiments have you been doing and how does it relate to my life? Mm. How can this inform what I do in my day-to-day? So there's a bit of a kind of backstory to, to that. Now, to your question, what did my life look like before I was making changes? Well, I'd say very similar to to other uh, young Australian males in their early twenties, who you know I was playing football myself, and then I started working with professional athletes. I was surrounded by that kind of culture. I was going to the gym. I was surrounded by the fitness culture as well as football culture, mm. and so you know my diet was was very oriented around animal protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, protein was king and I saw animal foods as the source of that protein. Uh, I had very little plant diversity in my diet. The plants that were there, they were the same ones in, in most meals. And uh, But uh, other than that, my diet wasn't full of ultra-processed foods. Uh, you know, I was eating a relatively whole food style diet and I, I didn't have any health concerns myself I felt great. I was actually performing well. It wasn't. It wasn't that something happened to me, and then I decided to to change my diet. I, I changed my diet uh, for other reasons, which I'm sure we, we'll, we'll delve into. Yes. Well, that's the next question. Is sort of, I guess, uh, what was the catalyst then? Because if it I, that often happens, I, I find as well, people who work in this space of being either a health or fitness professional 
generally speaking, what I found is that some, you know, we go through something personally and something happens to us in our lives that kind of sparks this, I guess, segue off into another uh, avenue. So I'm interested to know what the catalyst was for your own transition into this lifestyle because it was it was something that was quite unexpected that happened with your dad, right? Yeah. Mm. Well, my dad, many years before, uh, he had a heart attack actually at age 41. Yeah. Uh, we were we were in Victoria at the time and that's that's extremely young to be having a heart attack yeah. and at the time he was not taking any medications he had no diagnosis of cardiovascular disease so it very much came from nowhere and the circumstances were that he and I were spending a Sunday afternoon in the Yarra Valley together exploring the wineries around there. I was 15. Um, I'm sure I was tasting the wine, but it wasn't so much about that. Uh, <laughs> as it was just something we would do as a bit of father-son bonding. And on the way home that evening, he started to develop chest pain. Mm. And sure enough, by the time we got home and, and had dinner, and he had been trying to deny it, but it kind of got to the point where he could no longer deny it. And uh, to cut a long story short, he ended up being flown by helicopter. Uh, we were actually in an area called King Lake, which is yes. quite remote and and back then even more remote and, and quite far from the closest hospital. So they uh, brought in a helicopter and flew him to the hospital. And uh, thankfully, due to that healthcare that we have in Australia, they managed to save his life, which is not the outcome for many people mm. you know sudden cardiac death is is a major um, cause of death in this country and that that moment in my life it it didn't result in me changing my diet then and there but it, it really planted a seed we had a meeting with the cardiologist the cardiologist explained that heart disease runs in our family my grandfather had also had a heart attack at a young age and my brother and I were encouraged to keep an eye on our cardiovascular health and, and particularly as we were soon to be adults, we were young adults at the time. And we both kind of walked away from that thinking, well, we have been dealt a bad genetic card. That's the, the kind of fate for us. And what's to say that our outcome will be any different to my dad mm. who had a heart attack at 41 and he was just representative of the typical young Australian dad. You know, he was eating the typical Australian diet. He wasn't out there eating a lot of McDonald's and fast food. It was just, you know, a lot of our home-cooked meals that were very reliant on animal foods, a lot of red meat, a lot of cheese. Uh, and, you know, he would exercise. He was probably a little bit overweight and certainly overstressed from, from work and having two young kids. Um, but by and large, he was representative of a young Australian father and uh, a lot of my friends, their fathers, you know, looked exactly the same and, and sort of had the same lifestyle. So for many years, we felt that this would just be our fate. And, and then, of course, having uh, gone through my undergraduate degree and then doing a master's in nutrition science, I started to realise that there was a fair bit of information that I was overlooking or just unaware of. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, that ultimately led to me going down this rabbit hole of exploring nutrition science much more deeply and then making changes to my own diet. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible that I guess these 
couple of different things have happened to you because I think without that, it, you're right, it's not really, a, um, it's not incorporated in mainstream messaging, um, other kind of narratives around nutrition. And, you know, we talk about, I guess, preventing things like cardiovascular disease or other chronic illnesses like cancer, um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And you just touched on there that having gone through this experience with your dad that you just thought that it was your fate, it was genetic, it was, you know, sort of it's ingrained in your body somehow that that would be what would happen to you. But there's obviously as well a difference between the genetic factors and lifestyle factors, which you talk about this in the book and the the stats on it is actually quite interesting because you I think that would be the normal inclination to think that genetically, okay, I'm just predisposed to these kinds of illnesses. But can you speak a little bit more about this in terms of the differences between genetic and lifestyle factors? Mm, Um, Because there are a variety as well in terms of lifestyle factors too. Mm. Yeah, there's been some interesting work done on this where researchers have looked at identical twins. Mm. Uh, they're, They're a great model for trying to tease out how much say does our genetics have on the development of said disease versus our environment, particularly if you get identical twins, which you can appreciate they have the same genes, Mm. but if they move away from one another and live in different environments and have different exposures throughout their life, then this is a a great way of kind of disentangling things. And, And what they found is that our genetics certainly do have uh, say um, they probably account for about 20% of our, our health fate when we're looking at these very common chronic diseases, the ones that we've normalized in our communities like coronary heart disease, strokes, various types of cancers, type 2 diabetes, uh, and even obesity, you could, you could add to that list probably. Uh, whereas our environment, the way that we navigate through our days accounts for about 80% mm. of our, our health fate. And, and really, to, to sort of simplify that, that means that your environment, the decisions you make in your day-to-day are four times more powerful than the genes that you were given at birth. Mm. Now, I always like to caveat this because I want to be sensitive to someone who has developed a rare genetic disorder. There certainly are circumstances where genes dictate that outcome no matter what decision someone makes and that's very unfortunate it's much rarer i'm not talking about that i'm talking about these non-communicable chronic diseases uh, so in in kind of learning that it it flips the script from uh, something that's very disempowering mm. to something that's very empowering. And then it then it opens us up to this question of, okay, well, if environment is that important, what do we know about our environment and what decisions can we make to start stacking the deck in our favour? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a great um, awareness piece to have around that because, like you said, it, it changes the – it changes the focus from things that we can't control like our genetics to things that we can take control of again. So what are these lifestyle factors that we can pay attention to? Obviously, aside from dietary, which we'll get into a lot more in detail, mm-hmm. but there are other factors as, as well aside from that. Sure. I mean, a really big and obvious one is smoking. 
uh, and we've we've known that for a long time. And thankfully, the sort of incidence of, of smoking has gone down a lot. And there's been a lot of reasons for that, uh, along with science. There's been uh, big uh, campaigns from governments and changes to the kind of environment to make it harder to smoke with taxes and increasing pricing, uh, et cetera. A lot of learnings from there actually could be applied to the food industry. 100%. Uh, so smoking is a big one. Um, of course, alcohol consumption is another one. Uh, I think people listening are probably nodding. Maybe not everyone uh, wants to believe that. Uh, but yes, alcohol is another one we could add to the list that is a, a modifiable kind of risk factor. It's something that we can change to reduce our risk of uh, lifestyle disease. And then we have we would throw in exercise. We spoke about that mm. just, just uh, earlier. But that's a huge one, I think, understated uh, and, and, and probably a little bit misunderstood in terms of the specifics, what people should uh, be doing. Uh, it doesn't actually have to be a lot to, to really lower your risk of diseases like cardiovascular disease, but it needs to be consistent yeah. throughout your life. Um, and sleep. Again, we, we spoke about yeah. that, but that's another one. We know that shift workers, for example, and this might be a combination of sleep and also circadian rhythm disruption, but we know that people doing shift work, uh, unfortunately, are at increased risk of a number of, of chronic diseases. And there's a lot of ongoing research in that area to try and, and work out ways, tools for shift workers so that that doesn't have to be the case. Um, clearly, they're very important members of our society and, and we rely on them. So we need to come up with some solutions there. Mm. Um, those, are the, those are the kind of big ones outside of diet. Mm. I alluded to the fact that diet is the biggest, most powerful contributor. Uh, and we have data that shows that. It was a global burden of disease study in 2017 which looked at a myriad of, of these modifiable risk factors. And it was very clear that diet came out, poor diet came out as the largest contributor to these chronic diseases. So um, that's, a, that's a big one, a huge opportunity for people three, four, five times a day to kind of uh, shift um, or, or stack this deck in their favour. Mm, definitely. I think it's really interesting talking about, firstly, cigarettes and alcohol and understanding you mentioned there about cigarettes and how in terms of government narrative that's changed a little bit so it's made it a little bit harder for people to do that. And, we're, you know, I think what's really interesting about talking about nutrition and diet when we talk about culture and tying that into culture and the way in which our culture is set up, the current cultural and lifestyle standards and specifically when we're talking about consumption of animal products and ultra-processed foods mm. that is deeply ingrained in our culture and cultural messaging that it is normal. It, that's how we perceive it to be. So can you explain this for people who may not even have questioned the idea that it is ingrained in culture that we haven't even mm -hmm. thought to question it? Yeah, where to start here? This is a huge question, and I explore this in part one in my book. Mm. Um, you know, this 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 is deeply rooted in our society. It goes all the way into our school curriculum. We have industries like the dairy industry, and forget whether dairy is healthy or not. There's a lot of context dependent uh, or context matters a lot there. What I what I kind of want to throw out there is: should we allow the food industry to educate? 
our, our children in the classrooms, I would say there's a conflict of interest there mm. because their incentive or motivation is, is not necessarily to put forward the best information. It's to put forward information that benefits their industry yeah. and, and children are very impressionable and when you get in there early, uh, you can set up values or beliefs that last a lifetime. So there's there's one example. You know, we see, uh, and I'll, I'll sort of take have a stab at the AFL here. We see our our big sporting codes like the AFL major sponsors are companies like McDonald's. Yeah. And again, you know, young children are watching these sports. There's this association between McDonald's. This you know fast food, which we know is not health promoting, and their their idols who are running around on the field, uh, and so again, it's normalizing. We are normalizing these foods, which science shows are clearly associated with poor health outcomes. We're normalizing in them, and and sort of indirectly through that sponsorship, we are accepting them into our society as food. And, and so I think it's a slippery slope in, in doing that. Uh, you know, in our grocery stores, we see that ultra-processed food is on sale twice as much as healthy food. We know that price promotions drive consumption. If you look at the checkouts, when's the last time you saw an apple or a banana at the checkout? Yes, so true. I bet you saw a Mars bar and I bet you saw a cherry ripe and I bet you saw all the other things that your children are begging to to throw in your shopping cart, if not throwing into the shopping cart themselves. And parents just want to get out of there and keep their kids happy. And I get it. Mm. And so a lot of the time, those those products end up in the cart. Um, I could go on and on and on, but there are just so many different touch points throughout our society where the food industry, and I and I might say, if I was within the food industry. I would be exploiting these tactics as well. What they're doing is within the law, and I understand what they're doing. They're, they're private companies trying to maximize their profits for shareholders. Like it makes sense. It's logical what they're doing. Mm. I just think that as a country and thinking about the health of our population, we, we need to start questioning, is this the food environment that we want? Do we want to see these unhealthy foods in our hospitals or do we want to see improved menus in our hospitals? Do we want to see these unhealthy foods in the school kiosks or do we want want to improve those and use science to inform those menus so that we set people up with good healthy habits from the beginning of their lives? So um, that's a a very, very big, deep, uh, complicated sort of uh, area that that warrants further discussion, but I, I hope I kind of answered your question there, at least at a high level. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's it's more a case of being aware that the way that our culture is set up is that it is uh, ingrained in culture where it is accepted, like you said, as the norm, that these kinds of foods are accepted as just normal foods. And mm-hmm. it's more about uh, being aware of the implicit messaging that goes with that because it isn't necessarily explicit all the time, right? And it's just more a case of um, partnerships, like you said, with AFL and McDonald's or um, mm-hmm. things that we just absorb from from being exposed to these things. So I think it's, I think it's important just to be aware of it and have that mm-hmm. shining a light on it, I think is important. 
just to add on to that, some of the other ones that that people may be familiar with or may have heard is advertising during children's programs on TV. Often you'll see ultra-processed foods taking up those segments. Uh, You'll see cartoon characters used on packaging. Mm. Again, that's going to be very attractive for for a child as they're kind of following mum or dad through the aisle um, and grabbing things and putting them into the shopping cart. And, and we know that these industries are doing a great job because if we look at the current diets of Australians, we see what foods are, uh, they're eating and we know that 60 or 50 to 60%, depends if you're looking at US or Oz or Canada, about 50 to 60% of calories every day are coming from ultra-processed foods. Mm. Uh, and when it comes to protein, about 70 to 85% of protein in one's diet is coming from animal protein uh, with the other sort of 15 to 30% coming from plant protein. So the the tactics and strategies that are being used are are certainly very effective. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know what pyramid that they, I mean, because I've studied nutrition also, but at a very lower level compared to what you've done. And I'm curious to know in terms of the, the data that they showed you in terms of the food pyramid and what the recommended um, intake is of each of those things. I mean, I know that when I did my course, the processed foods and, and um, I guess, sugars and things like that, that was still part of the, the pyramid. I mean, it was still part of it. Yeah. The, currently, there's a plate in Australia and it's it certainly is recommending to limit what they call discretionary foods. Mm. And the discretionary foods are the ones with added sugars and um, other ingredients. Uh, and so there is a, a kind of message around reducing ultra-processed foods. But I think something that's really, really important for everyone to understand here is that the dietary guidelines, although they get a lot of airtime, they really only mean so much. Mm. And what I mean by that is you can have the best dietary guidelines in the world, but the moment I walk out of my door into a food environment that is set up for me to fail, they don't matter. Mm. The dietary guidelines are really only useful if they're used to inform policy and to change the food environment such that people eat according to the dietary guidelines without thinking. If we think it's the reverse and that you put dietary guidelines out and that all of a sudden everyone's going to read them and eat like that despite their environment, we are kidding ourselves. Mm. So um, I think, you know, that's just something for for people to kind of be cognizant of. And if if folks wanted to look at uh, what I believe are the best dietary guidelines in the world, I'd point them to Health Canada's. Uh, They brought out some really nice guidelines in 2019 But yeah, it kind of remains to be seen as to whether they will follow that up with changes to policy. Yeah, I think it's. I think that's a great point to bring up is to to focus on the environment and what I guess you can do and empower yourself to make those decisions. Um, I think part of it is to discerning the difference around the marketing and the science, right? And so we kind of touched on that a little bit. But what are the big things people should look out for with food marketing because? I mean, even on food labels especially, there's a lot of stuff that appears to present foods in a certain way that isn't necessarily backed by Mm -hmm. science or necessarily good for you. So what are the main things we should look for? 
That's right. You can have a sort of halo effect with buzzwords like gluten-free and sure there are certain people out there like those with celiac disease that need to adopt the gluten-free diet. But what's happened is the food industry has has really jumped onto this keyword of gluten-free and now you'll see gluten-free on every or a lot of ultra-processed foods that are certainly not health-promoting. If you, if you wanted to, to remove gluten-containing grains out of your diet, you'd be far better eating gluten-free whole grains like black rice or brown rice or buckwheat, for example, uh, or quinoa, not the ultra-processed packaged gluten-free kind of words. So that's one example. But I think really if we just zoom back out and think about what do we understand about food and promoting good health? And what are the kind of big core uh, themes? And, and what we see consistently is that diets where the foundations are fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds, where those are the foundation in them in their whole or minimally processed form. And there can still be some animal products in there, but they're not the star of the plate. Mm. You know, people might be thinking of the Mediterranean diet mm. or a diet called the DASH diet or a pescatarian diet. These are examples, all examples of eating in that manner. It's where the bulk of calories are coming from those food groups I mentioned. And the reason why that works is because those dietary patterns are high in fiber, which we know is health promoting. They're low in saturated fat, which we know negatively affects blood lipids, cholesterol. And they provide a good amount of unsaturated fats, particularly polyunsaturated fats in foods like nuts and seeds and even fish if you eat fish. Mm. We know that those, those fats compared to, uh, compared to saturated fats are actually, actually very health-promoting. They have the opposite effect on, on cholesterol. They drive it down. And we know that these dietary patterns with all of these those foods I mentioned tend to promote lower blood pressure which is another risk factor for, for cardiovascular disease. We know that this style of dietary pattern also lowers the inflammation, which is a hallmark feature of various uh, chronic diseases such as um, cancer, uh, even obesity. And eating in this manner also tends to result in the consumption of fewer calories, mm. which is really, really important given that there's, there's such a huge number of people today that are overweight or obese, which is, is a risk factor for lots of these diseases. Um, and, and ultimately, when, though, when you're getting majority of your calories from those foods, you're able to feel full, to fill up on, on fewer calories. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a different way of looking at nutrition if you've never sort of questioned the way that we've been presented nutrition before. And one of the big things I suppose you talk about in the book or you touch on in the book is touching on that, the Mediterranean diet, but you, in correlation to blue zone populations that do experience good health and longevity as a society. And so those different, they're, they're in completely different um, places in mm -hmm. the world. And they all have a similar way of uh, approaching nutrition, which is, I guess, the, the way that you've just described it there. Um, how do you, how would you sort of describe it in terms of, is that just something that has happened in those places that has become a natural thing because that's their culture? And because we live in a Western society um, and we've got all of these different kinds of 
ultra processed foods and our culture is set up differently that we that this is the way that we are living because it's just not a mm-hmm. cultural thing is that sort of what the basis is mm-hmm. it comes back to our environment mm-hmm. exactly what we we're talking about before mm-hmm. we are a product of our environment it's not that it's not that folks in Okinawa or Sardinia or Loma Linda have done all of this research before us and learnt all of these tools and implemented them and exhibit great willpower despite uh, an environment that, that wants them to be unhealthy. That's not the case. Their environment is just set up in a way whereby the actions, the behaviours that they're taking on a daily basis happen to be health-promoting ones. Mm. So, for example, they, they one of the commonalities is that naturally they tend to eat these very plant-rich diets that are plant predominant some of them are plant exclusive others contain some animal products but rather than those animal foods being the hero of the plate like we see in in western populations they're much more of a side a smaller element of of the meal Mm. Um, we see that uh, again with regards to nutrition they eat very mindfully some of them often push the plate away when they feel like they're 80 percent full um, you know, they know that with some time, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, they, they will then feel full as, as that meal begins to be digested. They, they are moving naturally. They're not just sitting down all day. They're sort of active at a, a very constant low level. They surround themselves with people who actually support those positive behaviours that so they found the the sort of right tribe and that makes it much easier when you when you are doing uh when you have healthful behaviors it makes it much easier to stick to them for a long period uh, rather than just a kind of two-week you know cleanse or, or detox so to speak which tends to be more popular in, in western uh, populations we we have an approach with health where we ignore it let ourselves go and then we try and get back on yeah. and then we ignore it, let it go. And it's, it's, it's like a, a yo-yo. They're just consistent. They've set up their lifestyle in a way mm. where it's enjoyable. It's also healthy. And so they don't have this kind of up and down fluctuation so much. They, they also are really good at finding ways to alleviate stress in their life. And this differs for, for different zones, whether it's, uh, you know, prayer or meditation for example Uh, i'm not sure that it really matters exactly how you're doing it but i think what's important is that you have some sort of tool or strategy to sort of downshift and remove some of the stress that inevitably we all carry and, and is a part of being human but i think being able to deal with that stress is the important kind of takeaway and they seem to have mastered that uh, perhaps better than than many of us in Western countries. Yeah, it just sounds yeah. like our Western culture is just setting us up for having to reverse a lot of the things that we uh, deem to be quite normal, really. Yeah, you know, I agree. I'm, I think there are many advantages to our Western um, communities and, and cultures as well. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that we all need to move to ok- Okinawa, um, <laughs> but... But I, I also, I, I don't think that we need to sit around and wait for our environment to change mm. because government action and policy can be quite slow. So we're in this situation where our environment sort of is what it is. 
but we do have this information. What can we control? Despite the environment, what can we control? Well, we can certainly control our environment in our four walls at home Mm. and we can control what food comes in. We can certainly start to think about the stress in our lives and individually work out ways where we can alleviate that We can certainly look at our movement and try and incorporate more movement into our life. Mm. So we can learn from them and and try and adapt it to Western culture as best as as we can. Um, So it's probably the the kind of biggest commonalities. There's also, um, you know, they have a deep appreciation for their family. They spend, you know, family first. They, They invest a lot of time into their children and also looking after their parents as they're getting older. Um, so there's probably something that we can learn from there as well. Yeah, a lot of great um, things that I think we do probably need to start to incorporate a little bit more into our lives. Now, I know, you know, a lot of your work is is to help people to transition into a more plant-based lifestyle. And in the book, you give a, a really fabulous framework for shifting into this way of living. And that's not really restricted to necessarily the labels of vegetarian or veganism, um, but just more incorporating these different aspects into our way of living. There's probably also some common fears and questions I think people have around adopting these kinds of choices because if you're not really well versed on the science behind it or the data behind it, that immediately what I think most people ask is, well, am I going to feel full? Because, you know, if I'm just eating mostly plants and um, fruit and vegetables, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things. So, what should people be looking for to make sure that they feel satiated to start with if they transition into this kind of lifestyle? Mm-hmm. So I think the the first thing to think about here is when you are reducing certain foods in your diet or perhaps removing them, what you replace those foods with is really important. Mm. That can dictate whether there is a net benefit or perhaps a negative effect on your health. So an example of that would be if you're moving, removing um, meat and adding ultra-processed foods to your diet in exchange, I wouldn't recommend that. You mentioned before some of the food industry and some of the key words. Well, vegan is a key word. Be careful uh, of a lot of ultra-processed foods out there that have vegan on the label. The word vegan is not synonymous with health. It just mm-hmm. means that it's animal free. Um, so again, I want to remind people that these the science that shows these plant based dietary patterns are leading to better health outcomes is looking at people who uh, are getting the majority of the calories from fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Um, you know, which also happen to be vegan, but they're different to the packaged foods. So what you replace these foods with really matters. And so if we're thinking about cutting down. Uh, reducing our meat intake, then we would be uh, thinking about replacing those with the legume food group. So the legume food group is where you're going to get most of your protein from. Uh, The benefit of this plant protein compared to animal protein is what it's packaged with. So sitting alongside that protein is less saturated fat. Mm. It is cholesterol free. There is fiber there is phytochemicals. So you, you get a lot of upside in that substitution. And we do see that you look at substitution analyses when you swap 
animal protein for plant protein, you reduce your risk of cardiovascular mortality, premature death from cardiovascular disease. You reduce your risk of total mortality. Um, so that would look like swapping, for example, some beef mince for a lentil mince. Mm. And often when I'm working with, with folks, I'll, I'll try and find one or two dishes a week where they have uh, a kind of household favorite dish. And it might be a, a kind of spaghetti bolognese with beef. Mm. And I'll say to them, well, what do you think about instead of, instead of that full serve of the beef mince, we cut that in half and we use half lentils, half beef mince. And that's a really quick, easy way for that person to introduce legumes into their diet. It doesn't feel like a drastic change. Keep all of the other ingredients the same, the flavors, the spices. You're going to flavor these legumes just as you would flavor beef. Um, And, you know, before you know it, all of a sudden they start to, to realize that lentils can be very tasty and they can take on the flavor of the herbs and spices and they might progress from there and it might end up being a completely kind of lentil bolognese uh, minced mm. dish. Um, but that's kind of one one place that I would look to, to, to swap is a simple swap. Look at your, your meals that you cook every week and, and most of us only have, you know, five, maybe ten kind of <laughs> dinners that we or lunches that we just kind of repeat. We all yeah. know what they are. And you can find the simple swaps. Um, now in terms of calories... This is a good point. Um, plant foods are typically much less calorie dense. Mm. Okay. And what that means is per bite, there is less calories. Now, I would argue in the obesogenic environment that we're in, where most people want to lose a little bit of weight, that's actually very, very good. Yeah. <laughs> because what ends up happening is you'd make these swaps that I'm talking about and you will feel full, fuller on less calories. Mm. Now, when I was changing my diet, I actually didn't want to lose weight. I actually wanted to keep building. I was working out. I wanted to keep increasing my weight. And so because I wasn't paying enough attention to calorie density, I actually did lose some weight. And that's actually is quite common for someone who's transitioning, maybe is, is very active, has a, a high caloric requirement. And it took me a while to understand calorie density and realize that if, if I was looking down on, on bird's eye on two plates, in order for the plant-based meal to contain the same amount of calories as the animal-based meal, it needs to fill up more of the plate. Mm-hmm. It needs to look like more food. Um, and, and so that's something that I want, I usually work with people to be kind of cognizant of. And then, of course, it's understanding that within the plant foods, there is a wide variety of calorie density. Yeah. So you've got your really low calorie dense foods like broccoli and cauliflower and mushrooms. Now, these are great to bulk out your, your meals if, if, for example, you're wanting to fill up on fewer calories and lose weight. Mm-hmm. But let's say that you're not wanting to lose weight. We'll go to the other end of the spectrum. This is where you've got you know, cashews, all of your nuts and seeds, and you can really lean into more of those and, and use them in your smoothies, for example, peanut butter, uh, other nut butters. And that can be a, a way to increase the caloric density of your meals to make sure that you're getting enough fuel for your 
energy requirements if you're trying to sustain your body weight or even increase your body weight. Mm, there's some really great ways um, and things to just to be conscious of, I think, when transitioning through. I think that point of just replacing half of that meal with um, mm-hmm. with with lentil mints instead of um, beef mints is a great way to do it. I think small changes always make it a lot easier to make those long lasting. So it does become a lifestyle rather than a big, you know, quick shift altogether. Yeah. And, and the, the small change, the other advantage there is that, you know, each of us have these very unique microbiomes and we could go into a huge <laughs> uh, deep dive on that. So I'll keep it high level, but there is bacteria in your large intestine and the, the fiber that we consume uh, some of that actually ends up feeding, acting as food for these microbes. And when these microbes consume the fiber, they actually produce compounds. We could almost think of our large intestine and the microbiome as a bit of a pharmacy dispenser because they produce these drug-like compounds which have very beneficial effects in our body. However, if we've been living for 10, 15, 20 years with a, a diet that doesn't have much fiber, like many Australians, uh, perhaps we have had uh, quite a lot of exposure to antibiotics. I know when I grew up, I often would take antibiotics quite uh, willy-nilly, mm. so to speak. Um, maybe I didn't always need them. I'm not saying that antibiotics are not useful. They're incredibly incredibly useful. They save lives. But I think sometimes they might be overprescribed. Um, there are a number of things in our environment that can result in a disrupted microbiome, a sort of weak microbiome composition and if you were to just overnight go from 15 grams of fiber a day like most people Mm. to say 50 grams a day that's kind of like putting an atomic bomb into your stomach (laughs) and and so you're you're likely to feel bloated and and uncomfortable Mm. and now the logical conclusion from that is gosh I, my body is not suited to lentils or beans or any of these plant foods. I'm going back mm. to what I was eating and I get that. Now, what I want people to understand there is it's not that their physiology is, is unique and for some reason plants are not beneficial for them. Mm. It's that their microbiome is not set up in a way that can handle that amount of fiber and they need to allow time for it to adapt. It's like if you and you or I, let's say we hadn't been exercising for a year yeah. and we went into the gym and I had you, you know, bench pressed some obscene <laughs> amount of weight and you hadn't been training for a year, mm. you would be incredibly sore and you could perhaps injure yourself mm. doing that. Um, so just like you would go into the gym and you would start at, a, at a, a lighter weight and you would progressively overload and build that up. You have to train your garden microbiome in a similar fashion. So go slow and low. That's um, you know usually going to, to result in the best transition. Yeah. I mean, I think that's super fascinating to understand that as well because I do think that it's one of those common questions, again, like you said, being bloated and, and consuming a higher mm-hmm. amount of you know, vegetables or fruit or whatever it is that, 
you do feel a, uh, some sort of difference in your gut and how your gut responds to those foods. So that's a really key point to remember is to be able to almost train your microbiome to be able to use these fuels in a different way. Mm. I really like that. Um, sort of coming back to protein, because I think like you sort of mentioned that we want to transition or replace uh, animal-based proteins with mm-hmm. plant-based proteins. And and obviously that's going to keep us more satiated. Um, I think one of the things that people might be curious about is what are the other kinds of sources of plant-based proteins we can go to? And also then aside from that, can we supplement that with a plant-based supplement? And what would we look for if we're looking to supplement with a plant-based supplement? Sure. Mm. Okay, so uh, the the plant-based uh, sources of, of protein are largely the legume group, but there are other foods and I'll go through them. So that includes tofu and tempeh. Mm-hmm. Uh, tempeh is a fermented food that, that is usually made from soybeans, but it can be made from chickpeas and, and other types of, of legumes. It, of course, includes in this group chickpeas and lentils and black beans and kidney beans and pinto beans, uh, et cetera. And then it also extends to foods like um, textured vegetable protein, which is a a bit more of an isolated uh, plant protein. It also includes mycoprotein. I'm not sure if you've consumed that. That's a a kind of – it's a unique um, food or I should say a relatively new food um, there's a company called Corn, but there's a lot of other companies now that are look that are that are doing this, and it's, it's probably sounds a little science fictiony. They use what's called biomass fermentation. Wow! And essentially, bacteria are fed plant ingredients, and they produce protein. Wow! Um, and 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 this protein is is very digestible. Uh, the the um, Microprotein also contains a lot of fiber, a lot of iron. So people may not be super familiar with that one yet, but I think you'll see it more and more on the shelves in the coming years. There are a number of companies that are starting to produce that. There's also seitan, uh, which is made from wheat protein. That's not going to be for someone who is on a gluten-free diet, but that's that's a very uh, high-protein, dense plant food. Uh, There's soy milk, um, and then you're going to get some protein, but less protein per calories in nuts and seeds and lots of other plant foods that you'll include in your meals through the day. Mm. I think the the question I often get here is how much protein does one need? And and is that plant protein uh, as optimal as animal protein? And these are really good questions. So the RD... RDI or RDA, depending where you are in the world, for protein is about 0.8 grams per kilogram. But I think most people within the science world feel that that's too low. Mm. That's that's more of an adequate intake rather than optimal. optimal. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I think that uh, sometimes I, I see people suggesting that's all you need. I actually um, sort of position with those that that suggests we need a bit more than that for, for optimal health. I think it's superior for bone strength. I think it's superior for lean mass. Um, and the, the sort of current consensus seems to be 
firstly, for those that are aged over 60, 65, that they should be targeting sort of 1.2 to 1.3 grams per kilo as a minimum. Wow. Yeah. And that is because as you, as you age, we have these age-related uh, diseases like sarcopenia with significant loss of muscle. We see osteoporosis and osteopenia, this loss of bone mineral density. Uh, and we know that you can you can reduce your risk of developing those by consuming a, a higher protein diet. And then athletes, athletes that are looking to improve strength or to build muscle, it's very, very uh, consistent among the literature that you need to be getting at least 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per day of protein. Mm. And it's not to say that you can't build strength or muscle below that, but what we see is that at that threshold, when you get to that level, that's where it's it's optimized. Yeah. And and so uh, those are the kind of targets that that I like people to be aware of. You can consume that through a diet that's completely plant exclusive, absolutely, uh, or it can be a plant predominant diet that has some animal foods, but also features some of these protein-rich plant foods that I uh, mentioned. The next the next question is about the quality and the digestibility. Mm. And there are some differences between plant and animal protein, but really the biggest difference is the amino acid profile. And you'll often hear of complete versus incomplete yep. uh, proteins. I'm sure you've heard of that before. Yep. I used to think that, that when... When someone said that plants are an incomplete protein, I used to think that that meant that those plants were missing a particular amino acid, amino acid being the building blocks of protein. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually what the definition means. And in fact, all plants, all plants contain all of the nine essential amino acids. Mm -hmm. It's just the ratio that differs. And really, for anyone listening or you or I, this is not that relevant. Why? Because unless you were just eating one single plant food for all of your calories, then you will get all of the amino acids your body requires in the amount it requires every day with just a, just a small amount of diversity in your diet. Mm. That's because certain plant foods that might be a little low in one amino acid, there are other plant foods that are, that are higher in that. And so when you're eating a mixed diet, it takes care of itself. So I think, again, the consensus, and even from scientists out there who previously perhaps thought that plant protein was very inferior, they've, I, I've been noticing and I've interviewed quite a few of them, they've changed their view on this over the years. Mm. If you are getting enough total protein, those numbers I mentioned before, the source being animal plant does not seem to matter. Wow, yeah. However, if you were not getting enough protein mm -hmm. and not eating with diversity, perhaps you're in a, a developing country, then I would say animal protein is superior to plant protein in that context. In that context, yeah. So it's it, you need to be, understand the context in which we live. I mean, all of us listening probably are going to be in a developed Western society where we have accessibility to a variety and diversity of plant-based proteins where we can get that full amino acid profile <laughs> across the board. But this, you know, we're talking about in that specific context of not being in that scenario, mm -hmm. that that might not work. Um, 
So that's really interesting to know. And then, so, you know, in terms of plant-based supplements for protein, Mm -hmm. um, what are we looking for there? Is it that we want that complete, I mean, the EAAs, we want them to be, Mm -hmm. what are we looking for when people are looking at labels? What do they need to know? I usually look for a plant protein that has a blend. Mm. So if you look in the ingredient list, it contains two or more types of plant protein. Often there is a brown rice and pea protein that are blended together. That's a pretty common one. That gives a really nice rounded out amino acid profile. And then let's say someone is, you know, really into optimizing their diet and, and getting those gains in the gym, for example. Something else that you can look for is the amino acid leucine, which is a particularly important, if there was going to be one amino acid that is kind of the most important for for muscle protein synthesis, which is what occurs after you do a workout and, and after you provide that stimulus to, to grow. Over two grams of leucine at a meal, two to three grams in that range, in that ballpark range for someone who's really, really trying to optimize every last percent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's really great to know. Just understanding the blend firstly of a, you want something like a pea or brown rice blend um, and that two grams at least of leucine as well is something that we need to look for. I think it's really important because I feel like people ask that all the time. What do I need to look for in a, in a protein, um, specifically plant-based? And so that that's really great. Now, one of the things that you did touch on earlier um, in a different context, but we're talking about um, the rhythm of the body, I guess, and meal timing. So if if we sort of hone in on meal timing. Um, now, to me, this is super fascinating because I personally practice intermittent fasting and I do it for a number of personal reasons. But you talk about um, this in the book, you talk about the circadian rhythm eating pattern. And this might be something new, a new concept to a lot of people. So can you speak to this a little bit, explain what it is and why it's beneficial for us to be aware and maybe adopt this kind of eating pattern in our lives? Sure. So there are a couple of different research labs around the world that have been looking at this. And I guess the, the question was, does the the eating window, when we start eating and we finish eating, the number of hours in that period, does that influence our health in any way or any sort of established biomarkers of health, blood pressure or cholesterol or even our body weight, uh, for example. So really interesting area of research. A lot of this comes out of Sachin Panda's lab. Uh, folks could Google Sachin Panda. You'll see that he's done some t- TED Talks and um, is probably one of the world's kind of experts on this. And what, what he has found and some other research labs is that the average person in Western communities anyway is eating over about a 15 to 16 hour period. That's pretty much sort of biting into something the moment you wake up and sort of eating all the way till you go to bed if you if you sleep for about eight hours. So I guess eating across your entire waking day. Mm. Um, and through through a various sort of different um, trials, and a lot of these trials are preliminary. This is a, a kind of emerging area of research. So it's by no means fully understood. I think there's a lot more exciting research to come to help fine-tune this. But what they've been able to show is that when you restrict that down to sort of 8 to 12-hour eating window um, 
And a lot of these experiments were 10 to 12, but there are some at that eight hour as well. What you, you see is improvements in some of these biomarkers of disease. So you see improvements in blood pressure, you see improvements in cholesterol. Now, some people out there will say, yeah, but those, those improvements are mediated by weight loss. And mm-hmm. if you simply had people losing weight over a 15 or a 16 hour period, they would get the same results. Now, there is some other research that, that is emerging again that has looked at exactly this and is showing some benefits independent of weight loss, which means that there is an independent kind of advantage over and above uh, weight loss. But, mm. but I would say, you know, granted, I do think weight loss contributes to some of the benefits, but we just have to remember it's a tool and if it helps people lose weight and they want to lose weight, then that can be an effective tool for that person. So um, what has emerged from this is what's called circadian rhythm eating. And essentially what that is, is eating over about a 10 or 12 hour eating window. Uh, so when you, when you wake up, instead of eating straight away, there's a couple of hours of just hydrating with water. Perhaps you wake up at seven and then your first food that you're having is, is at about say 9am. And if it was a 10 hour eating window, that would mean your last meal is at 7 p.m. So you're eating from 9 a.m. up to 7 p.m. Mm. And for most people, that means you can still get breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, as you said, you you do intermittent fasting. What what hours do you do that over? Um, I usually do a six, it might be 16. Is it 16? A very short window of eating. So maybe from two in the afternoon through till maybe eight or nine at night. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is fasted. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a number of different ways of approaching this. And I know people that, that do that style fasting that you do and get great results. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I know other people who they would like to have their three meals and perhaps they have kids and they would still like to have breakfast. So there's different ways of kind of going uh, about this depending on what your circumstances may be. I think with circadian eat, um, rhythm eating, one of the benefits is that adherence is quite high because you still can have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which people are very accustomed to. Uh, but I would like to see future research teasing out whether going shorter is even more beneficial or shifting the eating window to earlier in the day versus later in the day. I think that would be um, really interesting. And there is some sort of evidence that suggests that speaks to that exact point that there may also be some benefit from having more of your calories in the first half of the day when you're more active and having a lighter dinner. Mm -hmm. So you'll see out of Sachin Panda's lab, in addition to sort of eating over a 10 hour eating window, they also are recommending that more of those calories are coming, you know, particularly through the lunch meal as opposed to dinner and that there are some some physiological benefits that seem to be driven through circadian rhythms. And to kind of explain this in a very high level way, throughout the day, we have these natural fluctuations in uh, different bodily functions. We see our heart rate, our blood pressure, we see different hormones in the body uh, changing throughout the day. And really these fluctuations are all about preparing our body for what's to come. What's the next phase? Do we need to be active and do we need to have digestion on? Or do we need to be winding down and getting ready to sleep and recover? And 
as as we get towards nighttime and our body's recognizing that light is changing, uh, at least it should be. Sometimes I think in the artificial environments we're in now, it might be getting a little confused. Mm. Um, and and we're probably sort of throwing our body a little out of whack there. But what what should happen ideally is that the sun's going down. You get an increase in melatonin, which is kind of the sleep hormone, rest hormone, and you get a decrease in cortisol, which is more of a, a kind of alertness hormone. And what happens is that coinciding with that is a change in your ability to utilize nutrients in your food. Mm. If you think about it, if your body's increasing melatonin to get you ready for sleep, it's not really preparing you for digestion and utilization of nutrients. So if you are in that late sort of period of the day, it's, it's gotten very dark and you're eating a lot of meals at that time, it might not be, but your body might not be in the best state to actually digest and utilize those nutrients. And they are seeing some difference, which, which may, uh, be, be a case for further research to, to look at this and kind of really tease out how much benefit is up for grabs by shifting those calories to earlier in the day versus later. But for now, I think it's a, a good rule of thumb to go a little bit lighter on dinner and perhaps have a bigger lunch. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing to, I guess, look into because it's one of those things that, again, is very normalized in our culture to eat, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner. We wake as, as soon as we uh, wake up, we're supposed to eat. And so I think to investigate further into what might work best with your body and, and I think that's a really great way to, to frame it as well is to... I guess, work with the cycles. That's that's the whole point mm-hmm. of it, working with those natural cycles. Now, one of the things that I do really like to speak to my guests about, um, which is off nutrition, but very interesting, is rejection and failure because it's something that we all experience through life. So I am curious to know what has been your biggest or most notable rejection or failure and what have you learned from it? Gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, well... When I finished high school, I had my heart set on becoming a doctor and I studied reasonably hard and got pretty good grades and I had my heart set on actually going to Melbourne University and it's pretty competitive if folks are listening from around the world, it can be a bit tough to get in there and my, I just wasn't good enough. There were just too many other students that had better marks and I perhaps wasn't, didn't study as hard as I needed to. And so I was not accepted into it. And at the time I kind of felt like, you know, that was it. The world was, <laughs> the world was, you know, I felt shattered. It, it, it felt like um, where was I going to kind of go from here? And I think a lot of that was, um, perhaps didn't have as much guidance uh, as I could have benefited from around me, just letting me know that you know the 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 undergraduate course you do and and what you you go on to spend the next five years of your life is not going to be determining your your entire sort of um, career path from here. Mm. And so I went back to the drawing board and 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 ended up applying for physiotherapy as the backup, um, which turned out to be a great decision. 
but you know at the time it certainly did feel like a big failure I felt like I had kind of let my particularly my dad down being you know he's he's a professor and we'd spoken at length about me doing medicine and to then not be accepted was you know quite shattering yeah what do you think you learned from that rejection well I mean I'm, I'm very happy with where I've ended up now so uh I would say you know looking back on it you know I'm 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 grateful for the fact that I wasn't accepted into medicine because it sent me down another path that feels like it was meant to be maybe it was maybe it wasn't um but I made some great friendships and, you know, lifelong friendships through doing that. And, of course, it's landed me here where I am today, doing everything that I am today. And um, who knows, maybe if I had have been accepted to medicine, I would have gone down another path that would have been equally um, as fun and exciting. Mm-hmm. But I guess my key learning is that the, you know, in, in the moment it can feel like this failure is the end of the world. But, you know, in, in reality, it might just be opening doors to something new and something else that's exciting. Yeah, I really like that. It's so cool. Um, and my final question for you is if you had an overarching life philosophy or a mantra that you try to live your life by, what would that be? Hmm. Ask me all the hard questions to finish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say to be the change that you wish to see in the world, which is quite a famous quote. Uh, When I think about that and I kind of think about uh, influencing people, perhaps people that you care about, perhaps a wider community, I think people take more notice of what you do, what your actions are, than what you say. And, And so for me, that's about embodying what is important for you. You know, we hear practice what you preach. But I think there's nothing more influential than someone observing how aligned you are, how aligned your actions are with your values. So that's something that I kind of remind myself of. Yeah, I really love that. Embodying the change that you want to see um, and aligning your values with your actions and not just speaking about it but also speaking and acting in in that same alignment. I really, really love that. Well, I know that we could talk for, I know that you have so much more that we could be delving into, but we do not have enough time. But I am so grateful. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I feel like, well, I've learned a lot and I know that the listeners will have learned so much as well. So thank you. Thank you, Rach. It's been a pleasure. So where can people find you, Simon, and all your work, especially considering um, we've got a bit of a rebrand happening or mm. has happened when, when people listen to this. So where can people find you and your good work? Sure. So on Instagram, they can find me personally at Simon Hill. So that's pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, they can search The Proof uh, with Simon Hill on any podcast app and all the episodes will be available on YouTube as well. So you can search The Proof uh, with Simon Hill on YouTube and you, you'll find it there as well. And then my website is theproof.com. Amazing. So we're going to throw all of those uh, links up in the show notes. So make sure you guys check it out. Make sure you also grab Simon's book, The Proof is in the Plants, where he delves into a lot more detail about all of these great 
things and gives that amazing framework for how to transition into a more plant-based way of living. I also want to mention that you've got a awesome collaboration with Journey Retreats um, coming up, which is on the 30th of May through till the 5th of June. That's happening in mm-hmm. Bali, which will be very exciting actually because has anyone been able to travel to Bali like in the last two years? I don't no. think so. So that's going to be exciting. You've done quite a few with Journey too, haven't you? Yeah, this is I think the fourth one. Uh, Michael Ramsey and, and Christian Miranda, the the kind of uh, owners of Journey Retreats are good friends of mine. And so we have a ball. There's so much fun. Yeah. Um, the people that come are great. The food's great. The fitness is amazing. The community feeling is incredible. And every time I leave that week, just feeling in, sort of reinvigorated and refreshed. And so I'm, I'm pumped. And to be able to do it in Bali, uh, we've had the last few in Australia for, for sort of obvious reasons, but to be able to get back to Bali is yeah, super excited. Yeah, it's going to be super amazing. So make sure you check it out, guys. We'll pop that link up as well if you want to join Simon and the Journey team as well. But thank you guys for listening. Tell us what you loved and learnt from this episode and leave it in a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you screenshot this and tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you again, Simon. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rate Active Podcast. 